Hello and welcome to Appearance Matters Podcast, the Appearance Psychology Podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And we have a special episode for you today. We are going to hear from the first of our Appearance Matters 9 conference keynote speakers, Professor Esther Rothblum. There's not going to be a lot from us today, partly because I'm a shell of a human being right now, <laughs> as I'm trying to finish off my PhD. You're doing a great job there, Nadia. Thank you. You really Thank are. Thank you. Um, and I also have a bit of a sore throat after screaming on, on the thrill rides at Port Park, which is a great day, but not necessarily good for the throat. You don't sound too bad, though. It's, it's, it's on the inside. Yeah, it's a bit scratchy, you know? You can't hear it yet. Yet. <laughs> Okay, well, the two the two extremes of different years of PhD, final year, second year. It's kind of like a, a flash forward as to what's to come for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, you're you giving ready? me hope, you're giving me hope. <laughs> oh, you're too good, Jade, you're too good. Okay, so, Esther. Yeah, actually that's your mum's name, isn't it, Nadia? Sure is, we're not speaking to my mum though today. Oh, but if you do want to hear Nadia's mum, do check out our yoga and body image episode. Um, we, what number was that number episode, do you know? I actually don't know. No, I don't either. But do check it out anyway. Yeah, have a listen. <laughs> Find it. Find it. You do Google powers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Esther Rothblum is a professor of women's studies at San Diego State University. Before that, she was a professor of psychology at the University of Vermont for 23 years. Yeah, and Esther um, received a BA from Smith's College and her PhD in clinical psychology from Rutgers University. She completed her postdoctoral fellowship at the Yale University Depression Research Unit as well. Esther's research and writing impressively spans LGBTQ relationships, mental health, weight stigma, and procrastination and fear of failure. She's also the editor of the Journal of Lesbian Studies, as well as Fat Studies, an interdisciplinary journal of body weight and society. Esther's very prolific and has edited 27 books, including The Fat Studies Reader and Preventing Heterosexualism and Homophobia. What a resume. I know, right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we are so excited to hear from Esther at Appearance Matters next year. Uh, So her keynote talk is called Being Seen, Queer Appearances. And it focuses on strategies for queer-identified individuals to find identity, authenticity, and a sense of belonging. I really can't wait to listen to that. But in the meantime, I had a really wonderful conversation with Esther over Skype last week, and I'm so excited to be able to share it with you for you to listen. It's like a starter for the main. Exactly. I like it. Anyway. Exactly. And it's also a bit more personal. Yeah. I like to think. I agree. Let's hear Esther, thank you so much for joining me on Appearance Matters the podcast. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you and on behalf of the centre, we can't wait to welcome you in Bath next year as one of our keynote speakers for our conference. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to coming to Bath. I've never been there, so that will be exciting. Oh, awesome. I was going to ask, but I've seen you're, you're very well travelled. I wondered if you had been before. So, I've been reading your bio in preparation for this episode, and I appreciated how personable it is. I think it's nice to hear a little bit about the person behind the writing and the research. So, I wondered if we could then start by talking about some of your biggest influences in your career so far. So, like, what's inspired you? Have there been any pivotal moments? 
Well, you know, one thing that was very pivotal, and this is how I became a feminist, I went to a women's university, Smith College, mm -hmm. and the very first day there was a house meeting in our dormitory, and our president, who was a senior student, Lynn Kramer, had everybody introduce themselves, and then she talked about some of the rules, and then she said, uh, there's been a man seen on the top floor, and I was sure she was going to say, so lock your doors and don't go out you know, at night and travel in groups. But instead, she said, so if you see him, let's all tackle him. <laughs> and I was so astounded and delighted by this concept. I thought, right, there are 80 of us in this dormitory and one of him. And I immediately became a feminist. I thought, you know, this is amazing that women are told to be afraid and to be careful when in this case, you know, we clearly had the majority. So that is how I, um, you know, think about first becoming a feminist. Another example that comes to mind, which might seem sort of strange as being a really big influence, is when I finished my graduate training at Rutgers, I mm -hmm. then, because my background is clinical psychology, we did a one-year internship, which in my case was in Mississippi, mm -hmm. and um, I actually turned down two tenure-track jobs to do a postdoctoral fellowship in epidemiology at Yale. And so when that was over, I asked three people to write me letters of recommendation. One was my dissertation advisor, one was my postdoc advisor, and one was um, a woman with whom I had actually edited a book in graduate school on uh, women's mental health. Right. And um, her husband was a famous psychologist, and I had had him as a professor in class, and he was editor of a prominent psychology journal, and he offered to write me an additional letter. And so I thought, well, great, um, that's wonderful. And uh, then I was getting no interviews for jobs and no uh, job offers. And, you know, again, the contrast was I had just turned down two tenure-track yeah. offers two years ago. Um, and so luckily, one of the people where I had applied for a job called me up and said, you know, there's something strange in one of your letters. And it was by this guy who had written me the extra letter. And he wrote in this letter, I still know it verbatim, Esther lacks that spark of creativity that marks all true great leaders. And so what I did then is I sent out another batch of applications. Uh -huh. This time I left him out. Yeah. And then I got lots of interviews and, and job offers. Um, but I have to say it was a, a positive experience because for the rest of my life, if I did anything radical, you know, feminist, I would say to myself, well, you know, he couldn't say that I lacked that <laughs> all great leaders. And I did for the rest of his life, that both he and his wife have since died, uh -huh. write him you know, holiday letters and, and so on. Um, and I actually tell my students that it's important not only to thank the people who were their mentors, mm -hmm. but also the people who said something like, you'll never be a grad student, you'll never get in. And in a way, it's sort of like this uh, situation. In fact, I think the Dalai Lama calls that um, enemy gifts. You know, thank you your enemies as well as your friends. That's so interesting and so powerful as well. I can, I can imagine the smugness being like, look at me thrive now. I hope you can see it. Um, right. That's that's very cool. And I think it's also, I think as a an early career researcher, I think it's it's always nice to hear in a positive way where senior researchers, esteemed researchers have had had 
setbacks and, and overcome them so I think that's I think sometimes when you're also in it and you're like surrounded by setbacks all the time and you're like oh am I ever going to get through this stage and these obstacles that then um that yeah that people have have kind of got through them it's um very humanizing I think um brilliant so your work is it spans so much so it spans from fat studies to sexual identity I like the stuff about procrastination and fear of failure which which I guess ties into what you've just been saying there and, and mental health um I'd obviously love to cover everything that you you do but in interest of time um want to focus on your work on fat studies and sexual identity and I actually first heard about you because of your book the fat studies reader so published what, 10 years ago now uh, yes, in 2009 yes. so let's maybe start with that and maybe for our audience if you could tell me what fat studies is and maybe what's the goal behind fat studies work yeah well fat studies um, really advocate respectful treatment of all people regardless of body size and um, one of the interesting questions in fat studies is why we oppress fat people, and even more importantly, who benefits from that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's always important in any kind of focus on oppression or discrimination to ask, you know, who is benefiting from that? And um, obviously, there is a multi-billion dollar industry that focuses on diet programs, diet food, diet Mm -hmm. sodas, which is enormous, diet cookbooks, and and many other things related to the bariatric surgery Mm -hmm. industry. And these um, industries would have a lot to lose, no pun intended, if people stopped being so worried about their um, weight. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Fat Studies is interested in that, you know, who who is the oppressor and also um, who benefits from that. Um, And Fat Studies also regards weight, like height, as a you know um, human characteristic that varies tremendously uh, among people, and then um, related to fat studies is the new area of health at every size, which focuses on people's need to focus on health and not on weight, um, so that it's important that everybody have access to good health care, health insurance, um, fun activities nutritious food, lots of sleep, mm-hmm. you know, a caring community, and that those are the main things to focus on, not what somebody's weight is or what they look like. Right, completely. Um, and then I guess I'm curious, with your background in feminism and your feminist roots, can you talk about the intersect between fat studies and feminism? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what is so interesting about the entire um, area of body image and weight Mm -hmm. is that obviously the focus is on women much more so than um, than men Mm -hmm. and uh, there's even uh, one of the articles or chapters in the fat studies reader is by um, bear bergman who's transgender Mm -hmm. and bear is saying in this piece that when somebody sees bear as male you know bear is seen as a big guy and people stay away but when bear is read as a woman Bear is seen as disgusting and too fat, and yet it's the same body, you know, mm-hmm. they're looking at the same person. So I think the intersection of feminism and fat is um, always that the culture allows um, much more leeway for men than for women. And that, you know, is a much 
broader issue than just weight, that no matter what historical period you're looking at, or no matter which part of the world, there have always been norms for what women should look like. And, you know, whether it's women wearing corsets in the 19th century because their waists should be small, or, you know, upper class women in China having their feet bound. And now, of course, the focus is on weight. And what's interesting about that is that these norms, whatever they are across time and across culture, first of all, already exaggerate something that is smaller in women than in men. So women have smaller waists than men, but women were supposed to wear corsets. Women have smaller feet than men, and yet women had their feet bound, and women typically weigh less than men. So I think the early research on weight bias that I did in the 1980s and other people did really began to focus on this, that it's not about health. This is really about culture and oppression of women. Right, and with your work, I'm glad you mentioned that with the stuff on weight bias, that weight bias impacts women more than men in that way in terms of how that plays out at work, for example. and Yes, yeah. it, it's very true in the work setting mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, it's true in terms of university admissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true in terms of um, rental properties that landlords will rent to thinner people than to fatter people. It's true in the medical setting. And it also intersects, by the way, with race and ethnicity, mm-hmm. that yeah. in the U.S., um, African-American women and Latino women tend to be happier with their bodies than white women, for example. Um, It intersects with sexual orientation and lots of other things. Uh Yeah, brilliant. And just to go back with with fat studies, from what I understand, it kind of emerged in the 1960s, which kind of coincides with second wave feminism. Do you see the two, were were they interlinked at that time? Yes, uh, I would say... Yeah, fat studies, the, the term is fairly new, yeah. but fat activism started in, I think you're right, it came out of the civil rights movement and other rights movements at the time, like second wave feminism, yeah. the uh, gay liberation movement. Um, so in 1969, uh, Bill Fabry founded NAFA, which was the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, right. which still exists today. Yeah. There was also in the early 70s a small group of fat women in Los Angeles that called themselves the Fat Underground and that wrote about fat oppression. Um, In terms of fat studies um, and research, interestingly, the earliest researchers came out of health and medicine, not what people might expect. And these were people who began to say, you know, the, the popular idea that diets work, that if you tell people to eat less and exercise more, they will lose weight and keep it off. It's just not true. And also the popular myths that you know health is related strongly to weight is also mm-hmm. not true. So those were the early uh, researchers in the 70s. Yeah, they were mostly women. Yeah, yeah, great. So what do you see as next for, for Fat Studies work? Where do you see that work going or what do you think needs to happen um, to, for more progress for equality in terms of size? Well, I think it has a long way to go, although I think it has come a little bit further than when I first began doing this work in the 1980s. Uh Um, I also edit a journal called Fat Studies, an interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. journal of body weight and society. And it is remarkable to me how this field is growing exponentially. So, um, I mean, really, I get articles from at least two or three dozen different academic disciplines. 
I would say the switch was from, there still are researchers doing this in health and medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, then there were a lot of social scientists. And now the big focus is popular culture, you know, mm -hmm. television, reality shows, film, theater, you know, people are writing about this. There was even an article I published on how in Jamaica, the lyrics of songs changed from being fat positive to fat negative. So scholars are doing ah. really interesting things, you know, in many different disciplines. Um, I think, you know, the biggest area now is that fat people need to organize. Right. And just to give you an example, I am the LGBTQ studies advisor here at San Diego State University. Mm -hmm. um, we have a major and a minor and a graduate certificate. And on campus, we must have at least a dozen LGBT organizations. We have a sorority and a fraternity and a pride center. Mm -hmm. And if I had to guess how many students on this campus were queer in any way, I might say 10%, I don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. But there is not a single organization that focuses on fat oppression. And yet I would guess that 80% of our students, even some men included, mm -hmm. probably feel bad about their bodies or feel mm -hmm. too fat. And so I think this is an area where um, there is real need for activism. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I think what's interesting, and I think we've seen a, a rise of it, is this rise of, of body positivity, which has come from the factivism that, that you spoke about back from the 60s and, and now has become, has had this like resurgence and has become very popular on social media, for example. And then there's tensions between that message being watered down um, and kind of co-opted by brands, for example, as a, as a device to to sell more products or, or what have you. So it's it's interesting you say about the, the need to organise and I guess kind of retaining the core message of this work of fat activism to, for that respect piece to always be in there and not just be about, I don't know, maybe about privileging people who are in um, already socially acceptable body types, I wonder. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. There is much more focus on body positivity, which mm -hmm. is wonderful. I, I just want to add, though, that mm -hmm. most people, especially most feminists, understand that eating disorders, for example, mm -hmm. have um, their roots in you know cultural oppression. But when it comes to fat people, especially very fat people, they often draw the line, and then yeah. they actually tell people to do what would be considered um, an eating disorder, you know, to eat yeah. very little and things like that. Yeah, and I think you kind of you referenced it a little bit earlier, but with the the association between weight and health, and I think one of the things that we come up against as body image researchers is, um, and kind of or anyone really is promoting the message of of fat acceptance or body acceptance is is that line and people saying, oh, are you promoting um, unhealthy lifestyles by by saying that we can accept anybody at any size? And I think that's something that is really important to, to challenge and um, is something that comes up a lot for us anyway. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually refer to that as weapons of mass distraction. You know, that when I talk about weight, people always ask, but aren't they unhealthy and can't uh -huh. they just lose weight? And I point out that um, some of the problems in the health and weight research is 
that um, in most western countries, but most especially in the us, fat people tend to be poor and rich people tend to be thin, which is the result of you know employment discrimination mm -hmm. and so on. Um, so if you think about the us where only wealthy people have access to health care and health insurance, mm -hmm. it, if you're comparing fat and thin people on health, you're really comparing rich and poor people and there's no question that rich people have more access to you know health care. Um, the other is that dieting itself, no matter what, if there is no such thing as a healthy diet, mm -hmm. trying to restrain eating and then binging, which is what most people do, um, is also very bad um, for health, uh, for mm -hmm. example. And living your whole life as an oppressed group also, I think, adds mm -hmm. to um, poor health and so on. And there's lots of research about how terribly fat people are treated in the mm -hmm. medical profession. So if anybody sees a doctor or nurse, for any reason, they're often told to lose weight, and so they tend to avoid medical care until they're uh, really ill. But I just want to link this. I'm old enough to remember when homosexuality was a mental illness. It was mm -hmm. in our diagnostic manual, right. right? And so by definition, if you were gay or lesbian, you were mentally ill. I mean, it was a diagnosis. And... Um, you know, I think that is kind of comparable to now where sort of obesity, you know, the, mm. the medical term by itself is viewed as a medical term. People can't even imagine uh, a fat, healthy person, although obviously they exist even mm -hmm. at very high weights. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for, for bringing that up. And I think, as you say, the the influence of stigma on someone's health is, I think, far, far outweighs any like, physical characteristic in that in that way or definitely needs to be factored in when we're having these conversations. So I want to now topic switch um, and speak more about your LGBTQ work. And so at the conference, the title of your keynote talk is Being Seen Queer Appearances. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot too much and make you have to kind of recite your talk, but I wonder if you can explain why we need to think about queer identities when we think about body image work. Yeah, um, well, in, in a way, the most important point I want to make at the conference mm. is that um, if you grow up in a minority community, um, let's say you grow up in Los Angeles in the Somali community, mm -hmm. um, chances are that until you go to school, you may really not hear much English. You know, your, your family, your relatives, your visitors to the house, you know, are from Somali, of Somali mm -hmm. backgrounds. The food you eat is Somali. Your parents may be listening to radio programs or podcasts, you know, from Somalia, talking on Skype to their relatives mm -hmm. in Somalia, you know, reading you children's stories, etc. And so when you first go to school, it's the first time you meet the majority community. It's the first time you hear English, the food is different, the kids, you know, look different, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the popular culture, the television, the children's books. So in a way, you are growing up in your minority community, but you have to find or learn about the majority community. For people who are LGBTQ, it's actually the reverse, and that is mm. that they grow up in um, a community that is heterosexual and cisgender, meaning not mm -hmm. transgender. So they may not even know that there are people like themselves, or they may hear about you know, an uncle who didn't marry and nobody talks to him and you're warned about him. So they actually grow up in the majority community in terms of sexuality and gender, mm -hmm. and they have to learn or find their own minority culture. And 
appearance plays a very large um role in that both in terms of knowing who to look for. So if you are a boy in high school and you have a crush on another boy, you need to really know sort of before you come on to him, what are the chances that he might be, you know, um approachable as opposed to, you know, beating you up. Uh-huh. Uh and similarly, you have to know what you need to look like so that you are recognizable to that community. So uh-huh. that is kind of a, a summary of many of the things I will talk about including you know changes in appearance over mm-hmm. time and across our culture some of the gender differences in in sexuality um and also by the way uh, I think you've brought this up uh, the corporate market mm-hmm. and how now the corporations are targeting you know they they want especially gay men who are viewed as wealthy mm-hmm. even though my research finds no difference between gay men and their heterosexual brothers in income but that is seen as a market and what we are seeing now are images of provided by the media in terms of queer appearance yeah i definitely feel like we see a lot more queer appearance in in the media and non-binary included as well and i wonder how you feel about that if you think that's a a positive a negative neutral yeah well you know i the us is probably the the most uh, capitalist country on mm-hmm. the planet the corporations and advertising is everything and again there's kind of an interesting difference here to the fat studies uh, thing which is that in terms of weight the most of the corporations want you to buy their product to be thin so they would have a lot to lose if people felt happy about their bodies when it comes to lgbtq issues in the past uh, corporations could not advertise to the queer community because they were afraid if they put an ad let's say for a car in a gay magazine mm. and then the conservative politicians or religious right found out about it they might boycott that product and they would lose a lot of sales so for them there has been an enormous change in attitudes and now of course they're advertising all over the place yeah so of course i have a mixed feelings mm-hmm. you know that on the one hand it's amazing now to see um you know so many ads and commercials that include same sex couples or of mm-hmm. course there's still thin white wealthy you know couples in a very mainstream kind of way Yeah, I think that's really interesting and I I agree with you with the mixed feelings. I think I think representation is always there's definitely it feels beneficial to to feel like you're being seen, especially if you feel like as you were saying kind of growing up in a in a majority culture and kind of feeling like there's no one like in terms of like looking to see someone who you might be able to identify with. Um but I guess it's when it becomes a device a tokenistic device and you kind of want to look a bit deeper into that and I think there are ways that maybe businesses and capitalism maybe more broadly can can be a force for good but I think it requires a lot of thought and investment and I think it's it's um yeah I think it's really interesting it ties in with my PhD work but I won't keep us on that track forever but um I I do think it's really interesting in how that plays out um one other thing when I was looking at your abstract for the talk you said something about people in relationships with men so either um either women in a heterosexual relationship or or men if they're in a in a men who are gay in a homosexual relationship tend to be at higher risk for body image concerns and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about that yeah so 
the research, there's been a lot of research looking at gender and body image and mm-hmm. dieting and obsession with weight that finds you know women score higher than men. And um, one of the early studies we compare lesbians, heterosexual women, gay men, mm-hmm. heterosexual men, and a number of studies have done this. And th- what they do tend to find is that overall, you know, whether you're lesbian or straight, if you're a woman, you're more focused on weight and dieting than men. Mm-hmm. But on certain variables, uh, it is heterosexual women and gay men who score higher than heterosexual men and lesbians. And so I have speculated that what could be going on there is that people who are in sexual relationships with men, gay men and Mm -hmm. heterosexual women, get more pressure to uh, look a certain way than people who are in sexual relationships with women, that is heterosexual men and lesbians. one wonderful way to study this, which I always tell students would be a future area, uh-huh. is to um, survey bisexual women and men, because not all bisexual people have been in relationships with women and with men, uh-huh. uh, but many have, and it, I don't mean they have to be in them at the same time, they can be sequential. So you can ask people who are bisexual, when you were involved with men versus when you were involved with women, were there any differences? Because they can actually compare. Mm-hmm. And um, one qualitative study by a former student of mine, Jennifer Taub, did, um, she did interview bisexual women and did find that they were saying, yeah, when they're involved with women, they can wear more comfortable clothing, there's less pressure you know, to focus on their appearance. So um, that is why I sort of focus on this mm-hmm. issue of, you know, is it is is the role is the gender of the partner uh, an important role here? Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so I think we are on to our very important final question, um, which we ask all our guests on the podcast. So at the Center for Appearance Research, we have a weekly cake and coffee morning. And so what I'd like to know is that if you were able to come along one time, what cake would you bring and why? Oh, that's great. Well, I am originally from Vienna, Austria, and so I love desserts, and I'm very fussy about desserts. The more cream and chocolate, the better. Uh Here in San Diego, we have a store called Extraordinary Desserts, which has these amazing cakes. And whenever our department has a party, that is always my role to bring an extraordinary dessert cake. Uh So what I would most love, now I don't cook or bake, but what I would most love to buy to Uh your event would be a chocolate cake, ideally with chocolate mousse. And being from Vienna, there's no such thing as cake without lots of whipping cream. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, that sounds that sounds delicious, and I think it would go down very well. Well, Esther, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was really nice to, to talk with you, and we can't wait to see you at the conference. Thank you. It was great to meet you. Brilliant. That was a really nice interview, and we hope you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Yeah, and thank you so much to Professor Esther Rothbloom for generously giving your time to speak to me, and we're so excited to see you in Bath next year and hear your keynote in full. Definitely. We will be hearing from our other conference keynote speakers in the run-up to the conference, so please listen out and make sure you've subscribed so you do not miss out in the future. Yeah, you don't want to do that. And remember, if you like this episode and you find the podcast helpful, please do drop us a little review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. It gives us a little boost and helps other people find the podcast. Great. I don't know what to say, but great. (laughs) Goodbye.